BS You're Wrong, the podcast where we talk trash about the things people love to hate and hate to love. And I'm your host, Matt, and Shelby is still away on maternity leave. So we have another extra special guest this week. We're talking about Mank. I needed an expert on old Hollywood, on black and white films, because that is not my area of expertise. And so I invited my friend Josh Troutman to join me. Hello, everybody. Uh, Josh, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to be here to talk about TCM fan fiction, a.k.a. Mank. (laughs) (laughs) You've only been begging to be on this podcast for several years now so truly (laughs) shelby having a baby david fincher making a very complicated black and white movie the stars were aligning for you yes i can't think of a better time to be on this podcast and it might be my only shot (laughs) well we'll see how well you do but um listeners will be excited to know that shelby had her baby this week which is so fun Congrats. <laughs> yes. Congratulations to her and her husband, Rob. Their baby, if you follow Shelby on Instagram, you've already seen pictures of the cute little thing with the little chubby cheeks. But their daughter, Penny Esperanza Boyer Polo, was born on December 2nd. And the baby's healthy. They're all healthy. They're home. I've, you know, seeing pictures. Shelby is apparently well enough to troll me on Twitter. So you know that everything is good there and and it we wish them lots of rest and happiness and hopefully they'll be back on the podcast soon but you know not too soon because we have other things to talk about in the meantime um i have zero internet presence by the way no instagram (laughs) nothing i mean you could follow my dog but i mean so you can't really find me on social media but that might change in 2021 yeah turn over a new leaf we got to get you an instagram account josh it's necessary At, at this point in your life I mean, what else is there to do? Um, That's a good point. But you and I have been friends for, I don't know, what, like four or five years now? And mostly we just text each other crazily about movies. But since the beginning of this quarantine, you and I and two of our friends have been a part of a weird little like virtual film club where we pick movies and watch them together. And there have been some highs and some lows, but I don't know, like, what do you, what do you feel like the highlights have been so far in our movie watching club? Like if you had to recommend things mm. to the listeners from yeah. the things that we've watched, what are you saying? Well, first of all, shout out to Paige and Jamie. Uh, I'm sure you'll be listening. Um, I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think that the talented Mr. Ripley Mm-hmm. I think it just is one of those movies that gets better every time you watch it. And like, they have so many good actors in this movie that you're just like, it's just a real treat. I don't know how you can go wrong with that one. On the flip side, I recommended high life to this group. Um, (laughs) I have somewhat of a reputation and um, I leaned into that reputation a little bit too much. High life on my first viewing felt like amazing and like groundbreaking Uh, On the second viewing, and with a large text chain along with it, I realized (laughs) maybe it isn't life-changing. So there you go. There's a a love and a hate for you. (laughs) Well, yes, because Talented Mr. Ripley is like a Matt Damon, Jude Law, 90s sort of like con man movie. Gwyneth Paltrow is in it. Pre-Goop Gwyneth, set in like Italy, I think. It's very beautiful, very fun. Yes. And then High Life is like a prison colony on a spaceship. And Lord it's of the just, flies in you space. Know, 
Yeah, and everybody's dying of a weird disease and just like <laughs> maybe not the best movie to watch during COVID, but Unless maybe maybe outside of COVID. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. And Juliette Binoche with the longest, grossest <laughs> wig I have ever seen. Just like... Ah. There's a, there's a lot of Juliette Binoche in that, yes. Uh, well, let's get into the sure. news of the week. Josh, what story did you bring us to discuss? Okay, so... This is sort of a story. It was more of like an article I read in the New York Times. Um, okay, about, fancy. <clears throat> well, no, I mean, it, it, I was gearing up for Mank, and, you know, a lot of the <laughs> Mank people, the cast were doing their, uh, you know, press tour, whatever, virtually or mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, there is a New York Times article about Amanda Seyfried. So okay. she has a house upstate in upstate new york in the catskills somewhere she basically lives on a farm and it's one of these situations to like stay away from hollywood and feel grounded and all this stuff and it it was like a really well-written article i did not know she was like this very grounded person and just sounds like a really fun hang and like I would want to visit and check out. I think they have like chickens or goats or something, but highly recommend this article. It sounds like just a fun person to be around. And I kind of want to live in the Catskills. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Is she married? Yes. Yes. And I think has one child, I believe. Yeah. Okay. So it's just this little family up in, like, this house in the Catskills. Did they have pictures of the house? Did it look nice? No, but this is, like, ripe for, like, an architectural digest tour, like, home tour. Like, one of my favorite things is watching all the home tours, like Dakota Johnson. I mean, that's just a trip. Oh, yes. Anyone that loves Mm -hmm. limes and hasn't seen this has to watch it. But, yes, I feel like architectural digest, if you're listening... I'd like to see a tour of Amanda Seyfried's house in uh, Catskills. Trying not to say that in a okay. creepy way, but <laughs> I, I I just googled it on my phone. We got L Decor here, the website house tour. Amanda Seyfried's rustic Catskills retreat is a study in cozy moder- modernism. There you go. What house is it? Brick. <laughs> I'm seeing some uh, lots of like lots of like blankets. A lot of like shawly kind of things. It's um, like one of those uh, things that's like, do you know what the term huga is? Like it was super popular. Okay, so do you know what like millennial pink is? Like the color? Yes, I do know what that okay. is. Mm-hmm. So there's like certain like trends that have come and gone in the last like five to ten years. Well, like huga is this like Danish word for like warmth or whatever, and it. Okay. But he got into like wearing sweaters and making tea and coffee at home. And like Kuga is like how you want to feel during winter. It was like this whole trend in the wintertime. I feel like okay. if you could sum up the article or her place, it just sounds very Huga. Sorry, that was a whole thing. Oh, <laughs> no. I mean, honestly, thank you for enlightening us on the, the this term. I'm looking at the pictures and she has like a tree in her bathroom. I will also say this, though. I'm looking at this house. It looks very beautiful, but I sort of have a vendetta against the like standalone clawfoot tub. Mm. I just there's there's one here and I just like I don't know what the purpose of that is. I mean, I guess like for taking baths, but yeah, it just feels like impractical. Like well, one baths are weird. You're just like sitting in your <laughs> filth and you can't really take a shower because it's just like hanging the tub is just like out there in the middle of the room. Right. So, anyways, but so, aside from that this house looks very nice. 
Can I ask like a follow-up question? I know this is sort of a rabbit hole, but like <laughs> if you could have one thing in your house, like obviously it wouldn't be a bath, but what would you choose? Cause I have an answer for this question. Like, like a weird, yeah, uh, like a unique like, thing. Like if I wanted like a, like a bowling alley or something, right, right. Um, like there will be blood. Hmm. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So I can beat my rivals over the head with a rolling, with a bowling pin. Um, you know, I love sort of like a like a greenhousey kind of thing that's like attached to it, you know, with like mm. plants and stuff, but like glass. I I oh, am not a plant person, so I peaceful. wouldn't be able to grow anything. But I feel like that is a vibe that I sort of like the like glassed like in sort of like slightly humid, all of these different plants, maybe like a fountain in there as well. Mm. Uh, so I think I'd go with that. Like what about haunting, you? What, what's your... Like the haunting of Bly Manor where the gardener is always hanging out, but it's always dark for some reason. You know, I haven't watched that, okay. but yes, Never that's mind. the aesthetic I would love. I'd love a creepy gardener, honestly. <laughs> I, I have thought multiple times about how I would love a mansion that was connected to a, an old cemetery. That's uh, like, well, that's yes, another that's vibe I would um, I would yeah. say mm-hmm. like either a sauna slash steam room like basically that and or a movie room but not just one of those like 1996 like lazy boy furniture like yes like like a a really cool like screening room where like Mm -hmm. the film club we could like post covid in 2025 or whatever have people (laughs) and like actually watch movies together instead of like having to go to theater Anyways, one of those two things, a theater room or a uh, steam room slash sauna. Uh, one of the apartments <laughs> I used to live in had a steam room, and I will say it was very so nice. I used it fairly regularly. Yes, yes. It was great. It was great. 10 out of 10. Would recommend. Um, what a great news story. Uh, you know, love a, love, a, love a celebrity house rabbit hole, honestly. Yeah, there's, New York Times There's profiles, nothing quite like them. Yeah, they can mm-hmm. be very special when you actually are interested unearth some weird things speaking of weird things being unearthed the story that i have is that Mm -hmm. felicity huffman disgraced actress from operation varsity blues where she you know paid for her child to get into uh college uh for a sports scholarship that when the kid wasn't good at sports what a fun story that was yes well she was in jail for like two weeks or something out Mm -hmm. of jail And I guess I just sort of assumed that her career was, if not over, like basically sort of over. Right. And it came out in the news this past week that she is going to be starring in a network sitcom coming out next year where she is where she plays the unlikely owner of a baseball team where her like husband, I guess, was the owner of some baseball franchise and then he dies. And so now she's in charge of the baseball team. Mm. And in the article on deadline, it says that she, that there multiple networks were heavily courting. That's the term that they use heavily courting (laughs) Felicity Huffman to be in some kind of TV show for them. And I'm just wondering like, what is it that the network television channels are seeing in Felicity Huffman that they're like, yes, this is the person who we need to headline a show for us. Like, well, that was clearly written by your agent because I, I can't imagine <laughs> a situation where heavily courted is the right term for uh, her uh, work situation. But yeah, I can't imagine like, yeah, it's one of those things. Remember where like Roseanne came back and she like had her show, Right. There have been people that have gotten their like 
second chances to be like slowly put back into like TV or movies or whatever. But like the fact that there's a news story saying Felicity Huffman is being heavily courted, it's that seems very strong. Like what? I mean, I guess she was in Desperate Housewives. Like, is that the big thing that they're like, we're looking for the next Desperate Housewives for Felicity Huffman? Like, was this, she in another show that was popular? Like, who is her audience? I mean, I don't know what her audience is. What is this movie? Is this like a drama or like, this sounds like a Clint Eastwood movie, this first is a, of all. It's a sitcom. It's a sitcom, oh, apparently. It's a sitcom. Which again, um, what do we know that Felicity Huffman is funny? I feel like I have not seen her play <laughs> do that. Um, I can't recall. I mean, I'm not a Felicity Huffman expert, so maybe like other than like Desperate Housewives, I'm not like uh, a huge historian on her like filmography. But um, yeah, that's why I brought you on the podcast, Josh. Oh, sorry. My uh, Felicity Huffman knowledge is lacking, yeah. yes. Uh, okay, so I'm looking at her IMDb page, and she was on Frasier at one point. Um, she, she was has, on some she cold has, show called Sports Night? I've she, never even heard of that. That's the Aaron Sorkin show, right? I'm pretty sure. Is it? And then, uh, yes. Uh, she played the racist it. lawyer in When They See Us. Uh, Kim Possible. She, uh, she has a credit from Kim Possible. <laughs> She was in two episodes of BoJack Horseman as herself. But who isn't? Who doesn't have a BoJack Horseman credit? To yeah, be exactly. Uh, yeah, nothing on like, here that like stands out. She was in Georgia Rule with uh, Lindsay, oh, Lindsay Lohan, Lohan and Jane Fonda. I could do a whole episode on uh, Lindsay Lohan. What? A, what a. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> what a sadly she was not in mank honestly uh they, they should have they, they could have slotted her in as something i'm sure wow, missed um, opportunity uh well okay so that's enough about felicity huffman i guess she's okay. she's coming back sorry i didn't have more for you <laughs> oh no it, i mean honestly how much more could we want on her if her show makes it to you know networks then shelby and i will discuss it at some point i am sure Wonderful. um but anyways, on to the feature presentation. The reason why I asked mm. you here today, Josh, which is the Help. new Netflix movie that just dropped this weekend, David Fincher's Mank, which is based on the real life events leading up to or while the while Herman Mankiewicz, who is the person who wrote the screenplay for the movie Citizen Kane, correct. Uh, Yes, yeah, so it's about him writing this screenplay and sort of the events that inspired the screenplay for Citizen Kane. Right. I've been hearing for months now that this is like an Oscar front runner, that this is going to be a big play this Oscar season. So when it came out on Netflix, I was like, great, this will be a perfect thing to cover on the podcast because... We like talking about Oscars. What else is coming out these days? Not much. I didn't want to do an episode on Jingle Jangle. So this <laughs> felt like a natural thing. But I found this movie to be very confusing and sort of mm -hmm. inscrutable if you did not have an in-depth knowledge of old Hollywood and the events surrounding Citizen Kane. Did you feel that same way? I totally agree. I mean, I feel like this was made for like, I don't know, 300 people on the planet. Um, <laughs> and then everyone else was just like, yeah, it's David Fincher. I'll try it out. You know what I mean? Like, it was such mm -hmm. a specific audience, it felt like, after I finished watching. Which, 
mm-hmm. know, I love it, but I, I don't know. This definitely couldn't get made. What, what didn't you try to get this made like back in the nineties or whatever? And like, <laughs> Uh, couldn't get funding, yes. so it, with yeah, anyways, with Kevin yeah. Spacey is the lead, right? So right, mm, you know, and Jodie Foster, Real, I think. D- darkest timeline there. Um, yeah. So we watch the movie, and usually in this part of the podcast, we would just you know talk about the movie, talk about like did we like it, did we not like it, the performances, you know, will it have a chance in an Oscar, all of that kind of stuff, which we will get to in a bit. But I thought that the best thing to do for the listeners would be to sort of give them like the primer, give them all of the background information. Because I think if you watch Mank, just like Cold Turkey, if you're not a big film buff or not even a film buff, if you're not like an old Hollywood film buff, it's going to be very confusing. So I think Josh and I are going to sort of like try to walk everyone through Citizen Kane, the history that like led to Citizen Kane, the old Hollywood system, the Great Depression, all of that. So that if you're listening to this, you could like listen to that chunk of the episode, then maybe go watch Mank if you want to, then come back and we'll talk about actual Mank and the stuff that's going on within the movie. Um, will anybody actually do that? Who knows? But I feel like that's that's the best use of our of our time or it makes the most sense for me anyways. So citizen Kane often called the best movie ever. It is about is sort of like a retelling or a fictionalization of the life of William Randolph Hearst. So Josh, can you just give us a brief overview on who is William Randolph Hearst? Like what he did and why he was worthy of making a movie about. Yes. So I like to think of uh, William Randolph Hearst as like Logan Roy or Rupert Murdoch or even Jeff Bezos of like the Mm -hmm. early 20th century. Uh, He owned slash ran. He was like a newspaper magnet. Right. And newspapers Mm -hmm. publishing during that time was like how everyone was informed as like the only, you know, main primary outlet for anything and everything. So that was like a huge deal. So he's one of the richest people in the world at the time, one of the most powerful people in the world at the time, you'll see in the movie that being demonstrated in how he could influence an election, a governor Mm -hmm. election, and literally built a cat or not he, but had a castle built along the coast of California in San Simeon, uh, which is still there. Um, And they show parts of that in the movie. Have you visited that? So I've driven by it. Um, I drove down the coast on the PCH with my now wife mm-hmm. from San Francisco down to L.A. And like along the coast, it's about like halfway down. You drive by San Simeon and like you can take like a little detour and go, I think, tour the place or something like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's still there today. And like. Hearst Publishing, you know, all of that is William Randolph Hearst. So just imagine, like, essentially, like, Logan Roy of, like, I don't know, the early 20th century. He, but then he run. he's a, also a politician. He was, I right. think, in Congress for a couple of years. And then he ran for president. He tried to, which he didn't get. He tried to be the New York City mayor, which didn't work out. He tried to be the New York state governor, which didn't work out. And something that I was slightly confused about Mm-hmm. was that I guess like early in his career he was a Democrat, but then sort of like as he got older, he swung more to this like conservative platform that we're going to see in Mank and also in Citizen Kane, I guess. Right. 
so I don't like his politics. I feel like that's a whole other thing, right? Like a whole like historical podcast, but Uh like, you're right. I think his politics did change. He was very much an opportunist, um, someone who had the power or a voice that could reach lots and lots of people and basically manipulated that to his own benefit. I think for like the purposes of like a historical context, that's like the key point is like he had all this power and basically used it to you know, basically benefit himself. Well, because then all the other big plot line that's going to show up in Mank and Citizen Kane is his relationship with Marion Davies, who is sort right. of his mistress. And he also kind of uses his media savvy to help her career as well. Right. So Marion Davies, a quick like background on her. Um, mm-hmm. So during this time that, that, you know, the movie is like based around, um, Hearst uh, and Davies are together. Marion Davies is like, think very like Zelda Fitzgerald. A, she was a actually like a talented comedic actress on the rise. Okay. But maybe like not, tw- not, not quite the top of the heap yet. So like, I don't know, whoever you would think is like the top comedic actress right now working, but like someone that's still rising, like Rachel Brosnahan, Mrs. Maisel, right? Or like, when Emma Stone was in Easy A, someone that's still like on the rise, but clearly very talented, um, mm-hmm. energetic performer, uh, you know, beautiful, funny, just someone who is like a shining star. Uh, she had a mm-hmm. short career, uh, but for more backstory about all this and just in general, I wanted to recommend uh, the podcast. You must remember this with Karina Longworth. Mm-hmm. She is like an actual historian and does a great job of like going into all of these different figures during this time period and does quite a bit on uh, this whole dynamic as well. But just a quick fun recommendation. If you want to see a Marion Davies movie uh, ever since Eve, not all about Eve, but ever since Eve, the, <laughs> the synopsis is she disguises herself as a frumpy secretary to get a job. <laughs> then her writer slash boss, her author boss is dating her undisguised beautiful self. And it's basically this comedy bait and switch comedy of her having to like go back and forth being this frumpy secretary and this beautiful socialite, but it showcases her comedic talent. And uh, it's kind of a funny, silly movie from, uh, you know, I forget what year exactly, but like the 1930s. So if anyone wants to watch that, enjoy it's like a Mrs. Doubtfire, but with a secretary sure. instead of being your mom or nanny or whatever. Um, exactly. Okay, so yeah. So we have Hearst, who is this big media conglomerate guy with lots of power mm-hmm. trying to get involved in politics. You have Marion Davies, who's his mistress, who is an, a comedian, actress, who he's sort of like helping along in her career. Correct. Is there anything else about either of them or their relationship before we get into the plot of Citizen Kane? Well, no, I think they do go hand in hand. Um, and, mm-hmm. and like Orson Welles's relationship to uh, William Randolph Hearst is uh, important as well, but we can touch on him, you know, in a little bit. Okay. So yeah. So then let's get into Citizen Kane. So Hearst is this public figure. Then the movie Citizen Kane is loosely or not so loosely depend on who you ask based on the life of William Randolph Hearst. Right. There's like also other things that are going on in there as well, but it's, it's generally felt 
like that this movie is about him. Um, so yeah. do you want to give everybody sort of like a plot synopsis of what happens in Citizen Kane? I want to say up front, you said Citizen Kane is one of the best movies ever made. I mean, there's a lot of like technical aspects that make it that way. But mm-hmm. um, up front, let's just say like watching the movie would be better than me describing it. However, yes, <laughs> it's it's one that everyone should see. It's like one of those like on every list of like, you know, the 10 movies you must see. Um, mm-hmm. So the way I look at it is you have Orson Welles, who we'll get to in a little bit, plays um, uh, Charles Foster Kane, who is this essentially like a newspaper magnet. And the story sort of it shows this rise and fall of this newspaper magnet. But the key, one of the keys to this story is that it's told in a nonlinear structure, which they talk about in the movie. And that hadn't really been done before. So there's flashback scenes. There are scenes from his childhood, uh, scenes throughout his life that sort of paint this picture of this, this person that's being built up and that ultimately there's this downfall that he has. I mean, I don't want to like give away too much of it without like Mm -hmm. wanting the listeners to still view it, but just Mm -hmm. think of a rise and fall, a very uh, Shakespearean type uh, story told in a nonlinear fashion uh, about a, you know, newspaper magnet and Orson Welles plays the, title character and uh again like i don't want to give too much else away but anything mm-hmm. you'd like to add to that that you've watched it with us in our little film group so yes yes i watched it for the first time uh this summer and i would say that if you're going to watch mank you should watch citizen kane first like there's some help. movies yeah well there's some movies where it's like you don't really have to watch the prequel or you don't have to watch you know whatever it is that came before it it's fine stand uh standalone but so much of mank is based on citizen kane and there's not really very much of actual citizen kane things like it's all about the writing of citizen kane but you don't actually get to see any of citizen kane in mank so i feel like it's sort of necessary to have watched it in order to appreciate mank the movie um Mm -hmm. but yeah i think the main thing is that william randolph hearst is sort of like what's it like transcribed i guess into this character charles foster kane and it is like a generally a negative portrayal like he Correct. he starts out as this young like sort of poor boy he gets wealthy he gets corrupt he's uh running for office he loses his bid for i think governor is that what he's running for in yes. citizen kane um he has this relationship with a woman who is sort of like Marion Davies that kind of uh, that doesn't end well. And it ends up like both of their careers kind of sync together in Citizen Kane. So if you're watching Citizen Kane and you know it's about Hearst and Marion Davies, it's not a uh, flattering depiction of the two of them. Correct. The 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 crux of the movie is what you just said is that it doesn't paint them in a good light and hence a lot of the dramatic tension in Mank. Yes. So a big part of Mank is or is Mankowitz, Mank's relationship with Hearst and Davies and sort of the 
problems that he runs into with the two of them and their sort of disintegrating relationship. And then sort of like to get revenge or to call them out, Mank writes Citizen Kane, which is about them loosely in a negative light. So that's sort of the whole Hearst, Mank, Citizen Kane plot line, I think. Yeah, correct. Did we that is, that is correct. That? I want to touch on the studio structure a little bit and Orson Welles a yes. little bit to give a little bit mm-hmm. more like context. But, you know, if you yes. want to go more into depth on the. No, let's let's do that. Let's do that <clears throat> right now, because I think that's that's another thing that I wanted to talk about as well. OK, so first of all, just like in a very you know short way, you need to understand like we have a lot of streaming services now and, you know, we just sort of are in this transition used to be, mm-hmm. you know, you have your major studios, your Disney's, your Warner Brothers, your Foxes, things like that. But in the past, there were, you know, big studios, but it was a bit different than there were now. Think of them more like sports teams in the past where you have actors, writers, directors, all this talent uh, were under contract on each studio. So you see a lot in Mank. Uh, in the movie, this sort of comes to light with Louis B. Mayer in MGM and how he has certain actors, directors, writers, certain talent attached to MGM because they're under contract for him. They're not allowed to go make another movie with RKO or, you know, one of the other studios, right? So, like, if it would be like if, you know, Universal wants to make another, like, Fast and the Furious movie, and like Vin Diesel is under contract at Universal, and let's say like Kevin Hart for some reason is under contract at Warner Brothers, and they're like, "Hey, we want Kevin Hart in Fast and Furious 10. It's like, well, that's not really happening, you know. So that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing like that would actually cause friction, and you wouldn't see, you know, certain stars with other stars because they were under contract. So there's a ton of other you know history to go into there, but just you see some of that come to light in the movie and just remember, it's sort of like there's a handful of sports teams that Mm -hmm. have contracts with the talent in Hollywood at that time. Yeah. I think that's something really important to know going into Mank because they don't really explain that. They just sort of assume that you know that, which (laughs) is fine if you're like a big film person. But I mean, I feel like I am very like fairly well versed in movies and that's only something that I like sort of had on the, periphery because there's a scene where marion davies is leaving her whatever studio she is at yes. <laughs> and, and there's and they're saying like oh like her contract is done here now she's like moving to a different studio so basically like she used to be making all of her movies for mgm now she's going to wherever the next place is and she'll only be making movies for them exactly. so it's that's what there, that there's about. sort of a there's there's a weird power structure where the heads of these studios have a lot of power over the people underneath them because they can't really go someplace else and get a different job. It's not like nowadays right. where actors are working for lots of different places. So if they have some kind of issue with the head at Universal, well, that doesn't really matter. They can still make movies at 10 other different places. Where at that time, if you were working for MGM and you had issues with somebody who was high up at MGM, they could basically just like end your career. And then you'd have exactly. to go try to find work at another studio and maybe they'd hire you, but maybe they wouldn't. Um so exactly. it's an interesting dynamic that's also sort of floating in the background of this film. It's not impossible to watch this movie without that background, but like it does make a big difference to have some of the context there. So one of the other things I wanted to touch on was Orson Welles. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. we could talk about Citizen Kane 
or Mank without like telling people who Orson Welles is, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. So like I was trying to think of the best way to describe this to listeners um, uh-huh. without it sounding too hyperbolic, but uh-huh. just follow, follow me along here. So okay, Orson Welles was the definition of a prodigy. So he, uh, uh, this is going to be from someone who is with the caveat of not a historian, but has seen, Tons and tons of black and white movies in the thirties, forties, fifties. Loves this stuff. Have seen a lot of, citizen, or has seen a lot of um, of uh, Orson Welles movies. But mm-hmm. he's first a radio star and a stage actor in his early career, and we're talking like late teens, early twenties. Uh, mm-hmm. Like early twenties, he was like it on Broadway. Like you know, he was doing Shakespeare. Uh, Julius Caesar, I think, was his big, like, breakout. But imagine, like, radio at that time was like, you know, you have radio and newspapers. Radio was, like, a huge source of entertainment. Like, think of YouTube or TikTok right now. Like, that's mm-hmm. where radio was, right? So so let's, like, mix a few people together and come up with Orson Welles. So you have, like, a Charlie D'Amelio of, like, radio, <laughs> right? Okay. okay. So we have So we have that component. But then also, he's this once-in-a-generation young actor at the time, like I said, like on stage, and then you'll see some of his movies. So like a Timothy Chalamet or a Zendaya, just like very young, very talented actor. Mm -hmm. Also, once-in-a-generation innovative director and writer. Like, let's say you're you know, Barry Jenkins or Damien Chazelle, Quentin Tarantino, you know, all these guys put out Mm -hmm. some of their best work and still were older than he, than Orson Welles is when he's directing Citizen Kane. I think he's like 24 or 25 when he's directing Citizen Kane. Mm -hmm. And they say in Mank uh, that, and this is true, like RKO, the studio at the time gave him carte blanche uh, and allowed him to make literally anything he wanted to do because he was like it. He's like all these things rolled up into one and you get Orson Welles and he's like 24 or 25 when Citizen Kane rolls around and that's what you have. So like mm-hmm. this guy's like a shining star. I can't think of a better way to describe like all those people mixed into one but at the age of 24. So mm-hmm. that's what you're dealing yeah. with in Hollywood at the time. Just, like, extremely talented. And one thing that I was slightly confused about from the movie, which maybe you know, is... So, Mank and and Orson Welles, obviously, are kind of... You know, they're teaming up. They're making Citizen Kane. Uh, Yeah. Herman Mankiewicz is is the screenwriter, which which Orson Welles will also be working on the script. But then Orson is obviously, like, acting and directing in it. But was the vendetta against Hearst, was that mostly Mank or mostly Orson Welles? Like, how did this come to be uh, that they decided that they wanted to make this movie that was about Hearst? So so the way I understood it is that Welles didn't like uh, Hearst either at the time. And I'm pretty sure, uh, but, you know, I, I'm not as sure about all this history, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that Hearst had some involvement with Orson Welles uh, not being able to get certain jobs in Hollywood. And okay. there was a little bit of like Hearst being able to wield this power over Hollywood because he just could do it. And Welles mm-hmm. is like, 
this super talented guy and basically trying to like find a place where he can sort of like get going in Hollywood. And like, I think there was a little bit of tension there that obviously this movie wasn't about and didn't go into, but that's a little bit of mm-hmm. the background there. I'm like not entire. I don't want to get into too much detail cause I don't know all of that, but I know that there was mm-hmm. tension of some of that kind between those two as well. So you mm-hmm. have that added to this and which is another reason why they show you later in the movie why uh, Mank and Wells want to team up because they have begun to, you know, foster not just this relationship that they had, this friendship, but, you know, a shared interest in basically what they say is like standing up to Hearst. So, like, mm-hmm. they form this, like, pact, essentially, and you know, mm-hmm. two forces of super talented people coming together to make what ended up being Citizen Kane, which was quite something. So then the last thing that I wanted to talk about before we actually get into the movie is yeah. this uh, political aspect of Mank and sort of like the Depression era politics that are going on, because that's sure. a big part of, of Mank and the relationship between Herman Mankiewicz and Hearst is this governor election in 19. 19- 34 in California, where Upton Sinclair, who is a writer and is socialist, is running against Frank Miriam, who is like the much more conservative Republican. Yes. And at the time, the the Louis B. Mayer and the team at MGM and Hearst as well, who were all more conservative, were were really worried that Upton Sinclair would become the governor they were threatening to move all of hollywood to florida if that was to happen and so they got uh so mgm started making like these propaganda films on their back lot that were yes uh, like full of false information that then ran before mgm movies so it was like this but because of the studio system where you have like a couple people at the top who are basically running everything they were able to make these uh, smear campaign ads and then put them before their movies and so people think or and this movie you know discusses that a big reason why Upton Sinclair eventually loses this election is because of these MGM ads was this something mm-hmm. that was like prevalent at that time and other studios as well like was there a lot of interacting so, between movies and politics or was this sort of a one time thing so I'll tell you what the to the extent that I know. I don't know as much okay. on that specific election, obviously, as mm-hmm. probably some historical person would know. But like, mm-hmm. what I do know is like something to share with the listeners is you know at the time when at that time when people are going to see movies, they're paying I forget what it is like ten cents or five cents or twenty cents, whatever it is, and they run this movie through like. I forget how how long like Gone with the Wind ran in theaters, but it, it runs for quite a while. But, you mm-hmm. know, movies look different than they look now. Like when you go to a movie theater, that was like your news, your entertainment, you know, a lot of different things mixed in there. You don't, you know, right now you go to a theater, well, let's just say like a year ago, you go to a theater yes. and <laughs> you see like, an advertisement for like Samsung, right? And then you see like a movie trailer of like, you know, I don't know, Little Women or whatever. And then you're like, mm-hmm. oh, this is, you know, a fun movie. But before, you know, oftentimes you would go to a theater and there would be 
some local or maybe not local, but like national news, regional news, whatever built into like the beginning upfront time uh, when people would go to theaters and you just had, would have like masses and masses of people that would go to movies. And that was one of their primary sources of getting information outside of newspapers. So another, you know, uh, piece there, how uh, Hearst is able to sort of pull his strings is to be involved in like every sort of distribution outlet possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so this is common. This was common. And one of the other things here to keep in mind is this is around, uh, and you see in the film around, uh, world war two or leading up to world war two. Mm-hmm. And a lot of what Hollywood became in the forties and during the war was somewhat of a propaganda machine. Like not mm-hmm. every movie turned into that, but, um, there were several movies that were made, where the story, some more uh, heavy handed than others that were very like pro America or, you know, very much um, pro allied forces uh, type movies that were made and produced and then shown on the screen to all these masses. And it was, you know, used as a tool uh, to garner support and all those things. So this was a tool that was used in this way during this time period. So to answer your question, mm-hmm. yes. So I think that that is a lot of historical context for this movie and just, you know, like cinematic history for it at leading up sure. to Mank. Uh, so hopefully that helps everybody, If whether you've watched it or not, or you're planning to, to sort of like get your bearings a little bit. But okay, now let's get into actual Mank, David Fincher's movie, which just came out on Netflix. So I'll just do a quick plot synopsis. Yeah. We we have Mank, Herman Mankiewicz, who gets hired by Orson Welles to write the script for Citizen Kane. He is like in his 50s. He is an alcoholic. For whatever reason, he has a busted leg. I can't remember if we got into that in this movie. But he basically yeah, gets he was like in the car crash. Oh, yes, that's right. (laughs) He gets shipped off to this, like, cottage in the middle of nowhere and told to write a screenplay. So that's sort of, like, the A plot of the movie is just him writing this screenplay. But then we get all of these flashbacks that are about him, uh, you know, 10, 15 years earlier and his interactions with Hearst and Davies. And he sort of uh, becomes friends with Marion Davies. They have sort of a relationship. You know, there's various scenes where they bump into each other on the lot at film sets at parties they sort of talk about politics mank has sort of a working relationship with her and then we get to this uh governor's election where mgm the studio that mank is working for is trying to turn the election towards the republicans we kind of slowly learn that mank doesn't want that that he is actually more liberal but in the end he sort of he tries to work on various people to get the studio to stop making these kind of smear campaign videos but it doesn't work Mar- he approaches marion davies trying to get her to help him out she won't uh, he ends up having this huge blowout with Hearst and Marion Davies at this party. He sort of gets like excommunicated from Hollywood a little bit. And that's when then he's hired to write this screenplay. So that's basically the plot of the movie. 
Did you like the movie, Josh? Like, uh, with your what? What were your expectations going in? What did like? How yeah. did you think it went? What were your overall takeaways? So this was sort of like what you hinted at or talked about earlier. This is sort of like Christmas for me seeing this uh-huh. movie. Or I was like anticipating this, and then essentially like opened it like a gift um, in December, and. Yes, I like this movie, but with a caveat. I, I mean, not to you know throw out my letterbox, but on letterbox I gave it yeah. four out of five, four out of five stars, and it, it just was hard. So the first, starting with some of the challenges, right? So what I had trouble with was like this felt like again it was made for like just a very small group of people. Yes, it tells this you know, broader story, you know, and everything. But like, I love that kind of stuff, this topic, this world, these characters, I want to hang out with these people, right? But like, if I'm trying to be unbiased and saying like, objectively, is this a good movie or not a good movie or whatever? I wouldn't say this is David Fincher's best movie, like objectively, right? But like from a Mm -hmm. filmmaking standpoint, everything was perfect you're not going to get a better technician you know all the you know we could go into however much detail you want but like all that stuff that part of the movie was was fantastic it was terrific right but like the core Mm -hmm. of the narrative like i feel like will and it sounds like for some will leave people cold or maybe Mm -hmm. lukewarm at best but like me personally, I really liked it, but as a tried to be unbiased type person looking at this movie, I can't quite say that like it lived up to the expectations. This wasn't another social network. This wasn't that level for me. Yes. Yeah. If that I makes think sense. That... Like it's like gonna be a go to that I could watch over and over again, but am I gonna be like, hey guys, let's come over to my house in my screening room? And like watch make like people are probably going to say no. Right. But like if you say that about social network, you know, people will probably come over. That's sort of how I see it. Yeah. I was watching this with with Paige, another person in our film group who's been on the podcast before as well. And we were texting while we were watching it. And like both of us, I think, know a decent amount about film. Both of us have watched his Citizen Kane in the past year. And I think both of us still found it difficult to sort of figure out who all of these characters were, what's going on, what's the situation, especially in the first half of the movie. There's not even mm-hmm. really necessarily like a driving plot. It's just all of these different scenes regarding writing this script, this Hollywood studio, this election that's going on. It's just so many people, so much history, and it's hard to wrap your mind around it. And I was thinking after watching it, you know, in these past couple of days, like if this movie was, if this was fiction, if this wasn't based on, you know, pre-existing films and pre-existing, you know, works of history that you could know. Like if if you changed all of the names in this so that it was just like all things you'd never seen before, this would mm-hmm. make absolutely no sense as a movie. It only <laughs> yeah. really works if you've seen Citizen Kane, if you know the if you know who William Randolph right. Hearst is and how they're how he reacts with Citizen Kane, if you know about the history, if you know about Upton Sinclair, like you sort of have to have a lot of general information for this movie to even make sense and i think a big reason 
why that is the case is because of Mank's screenplay, which was written by David Fincher's father Mm -hmm. back in the 90s, Jack Fincher, who then has since passed away. So Mm -hmm. he was obviously very interested in this subject. He wanted his son, who's a famous director, to direct the film based on his screenplay. Uh, I mean, I I can see the emotional attachment that David Fincher must have to this screenplay and to his father. He wants to make it. But I also think that since his father is, has passed away and, it, you know, the sole screenwriter credit for this movie is the dad. I know that they went in and sort of like touched it up a bit in places. Yeah. But I think that... I think that he has the screenplay that he wants to work off of and Netflix is giving him all this money. Netflix famously doesn't really give very many notes to their directors. They just give them loads of money and say, go for it. So I think that's how we ended up with this movie that is just so niche and so particular is that it's, it's sort of David Fincher's like love letter to his dad, which is great, Mm -hmm. except for the general public. I don't know how they're going to like react to this at all. Oh, I was just going to say, I totally agree. And one additional point is, I, th- I think I read this somewhere leading up to Mank, was that uh, his dad, Jack, uh, was involved in the Aviator movie. Like, I yes. think he may mm-hmm. have written like a draft of that script. So another movie that was very much about this era. So just to give additional context, like, that that's sort of lingering over this as well. And like you said, I mm-hmm. think at the end of the day, this is a very personal project. Which and is fine. so the reception of this, it has an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. <clears throat> but I think that this is a this is the type of movie that would appeal to film critics that doesn't appeal to other people. Mm-hmm. And while it has a 72% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, which I was honestly shocked by i thought that that would have been much lower i noticed that this was not in the netflix top 10 at all that i saw i checked at various points over the weekend this wasn't in the top 10 and also i feel like it didn't get promoted that much like yeah with with the irishman and roma which i feel like were netflix's two big pushes the last two years they were all over the home page all over everything like every episode of anything you ended it was trying to get you to run i mean i I feel like I feel like I saw a lot more of Roma. Mank was not on my home screen. Like I had to sort of yeah. search for it. Today I went back to look for it. It's not in the top 10 even of movies. Like it's mm. I feel like I saw I did not see a lot of buzz about it online. I'm very intrigued with how this and with Netflix we don't really get metrics, but it's like have you right. do you feel like this is a movie that like the uh, the people are talking about or that uh is getting like a general viewership from people who aren't like film buffs in in short no like i feel like if mm-hmm. i'm asking like the average moviegoer that likes movies that will watch mm-hmm. netflix like let's say my wife for example she's not going to be interested in this movie and i can think of mm-hmm. like half dozen maybe 10 other people that like if i were to ask like hey you you know they like movies do you want to watch mank like my guess is like seven or eight out of ten of those people are like first of all what is that second of all yes pass (laughs) Mm -hmm. right so like i think that maybe in this maybe that's just anecdotal but like to me I still don't see the audience for this. And I think that's part of why it didn't get made in the nineties, but like, and did get made on a streaming service on Netflix, right? Like Mm -hmm. you're giving David Fincher similar to 
Wells, you're giving him carte blanche, right? Like he's prolific, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever he wants to do, you're going to let him do. And this is what he did. And it's not a bad movie, but again, it's not easy to watch from an audience perspective. I liken it to Moneyball. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. to me the most similar, another movie that's very like inside baseball, you know, pun intended. Yeah. um, (laughs) But like, seriously, if you don't, to have, like you said before, we keep saying this, if you don't have that like inside scoop on Hollywood in the 30s, 40s, whatever, like the same with Moneyball, like, you know, it, it's not as accessible. But at least with Moneyball, I felt like there was much more of the human story came out. Like mm-hmm. I felt I felt like Moneyball was at least more accessible to audiences than this was. But I do think that there's a lot of similarities to be drawn there. Oh, yeah. I I saw Moneyball in college and I am not a baseball person. And I remember enjoying it to a certain degree where this uh, where this I did not as much. But I think that really the the human aspect of Mank is this Mank versus Hearst uh, sort of vendetta thing going on that you don't really even get until the last like 20 minutes of the movie there was a certain point where i realized oh okay this is what the movie is about the mank is trying to like get one over on hearst by telling his story in citizen kane but that you don't understand that that is at any point the plot until you get to like the last 30 minutes of the movie yeah but also like i i got out of it too it's this guy going from being just a court jester into like Mm -hmm. actually doing something meaningful Uh right so like there's that scene with irving thalberg who was a you know they call him the boy wonder producer for mgm with louis b mayer um Mm -hmm. he has like some sit down or some talk with him in his uh, office basically like that saying like you know you're basically just the court jester why don't you like do something and mm-hmm. like I go to Matt every day for, you know, whatever. I forget the exact mm-hmm. I'm like butchering it, but there's that scene. No. And and there's this like, you know, the narrative is, you know, supposed to mirror Citizen Kane and that it like jumps around, but mm-hmm. that that's like his turning point, right? Like you see that birthday scene earlier in the movie, so much going on, great scene. And you see him being the court jester and always having the right quip and just being the smartest person in the room, like he says. And then you see that scene with Thalberg where he's like, hey, you know, try being something more than that. And then I think that sort of pushes his like story into like, hey, I'm going to do this. This is going to be my Mm -hmm. seminal work and standing up to Hearst. And you see all of that, like, you know, checking in on the Sinclair protests things like that that sort of builds Mm -hmm. up to him like actually doing something but if Mm -hmm. that's the thrust of your main character that's great but again like does that like really like you know hit home for for a lot of people in an audience i don't know but it right yeah that's that's what i got out of it Yeah. yeah so so another thing i want to talk about is obviously the oscar chances here i feel like because this year so many studios haven't had a lot of movies come out uh, because Mm -hmm. theaters have been shut down the general uh consensus has been like okay this is netflix's year for best picture this is netflix's year to sweep up these oscars they have a really strong awards slate and i had sort of 
heard or uh, felt like the general idea was that Mank was sort of like their crown jewel of the year, that this would be their push for best picture, which mm-hmm. now I'm looking at being like, I don't know how this does, how this wins best picture, because I feel like this is not no. broadly accessible enough. Like if you look at something like green book or the shape of water or spotlight or moonlight, like all of those are movies that have an emotional pull that people can really get behind. Right. I don't see that happening with Mank. but then also you look down the lineup of the Netflix movies that are in contention and you have like hillbilly elegy, which didn't do well. I'm thinking right. of ending things, which I don't think did well. Rebecca, the boys in the band, um, is it Ma Rainey supposed to come out? Yeah, so it's like so now I'm I feel like the only options really that they have left for maybe a best picture contender are Ma Rainey's Black Bottom or um the Midnight Sky, the George Clooney movie that comes that's coming out, which yeah, I really have right. no idea if that's uh good or not. But it's like I guess otherwise maybe the trial of the Chicago Seven, but I feel like that's sort of already losing steam. I just don't yeah. know what Netflix's plan is here with this Oscar campaign, if they're not pushing Mank, like what are they pushing? Right. I mean, like you said, I think we'll see a couple of the other ones drop, like the Ma Rainey's Black Bottom with Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. That might get the mm-hmm. narrative going because of Chadwick Boseman. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but uh, like you said, I can't see a tr- the Chicago trial. I don't see that going anywhere or the trial of Chicago seven. I don't see that going anywhere. The, like you said, the, the George Clooney one, I think, and the Chadwick, Chadwick Boseman narratives are the two that I could, I mean, at the end of the day, best picture is a narrative, right? So to mm-hmm. me, those two, I could see having a narrative that could eclipse Mank. I don't see, I totally agree with your logic. I don't see Mank as having, uh, is a not accessible enough and b the narrative with him and his dad and a personal picture and old Hollywood on paper, it sounds like it works, but then you see the movie and you're like, mm, man, I don't know. I I'm totally with you, but like I'm looking at gold derby right now, the best picture nominees. Can I just read like the first five, six or seven of these just oh, to yeah. see what Go you for think? It. Mm-hmm. So Nomadland is number one at seven to one. I'm very excited about Nomadland. Uh, yeah. Well, I was just saying, I've heard good things about Nomadland. It's like sort of been on the festival circuit, but it's not out right. for p- the public yet. And this is what makes it weird. A lot of these, you know, are not out yet or not accessible. We can't see them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mank number two at 15 to two. Trial of Chicago 7 is number three. I think those are just on there from like, a sort of general consensus before people even saw them. I I can't imagine that. I I think that that those will drop down once we get further into the awards. I season, think which so still too. has five months left. I might add. The Ma Rainey, One Night in Miami, The Father, Minari, News of the World. All these are like I think, like you just said. I mean, the De Five Bloods is on there. All these mm-hmm. are like in there but again like maybe some of these others come out and push these down i don't see what else could take its place other than the narrative of the chadwick boseman ma rainey or um the george clooney i i I don't know they love george clooney 
<laughs> I feel like Mank is a very impressive technical film, so I'm sure it will get yes. a lot of below the line nominations. 100% and I can see agree. it getting a Best Picture nomination just because of that. Like all of right. these different guilds are going to be voting for it. I could see it being a Best Picture nominee. I feel like it's going to have a hard time winning. Gary yeah, Oldman, I think, think Irish could get nominated. 2.0. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the vibe I'm getting as well. I feel like Gary Oldman could get nominated, but he just won for Best Actor, so I don't think he's winning again. I think that Amanda Seyfried will get nominated because I thought yeah. that she was good in this, but I sort of also am not sure if she will win. And if she does win, I feel like it's because it's a weak year. Uh, she's going to be up against Glenn Close for playing Oli- And Olivia Coleman, and- I think. I think she yes. has a strong, strong chance of winning. I mean, like... She's, I think, hasn't done anything that the Academy doesn't like, you know, so mm-hmm. she's she's loved by, you know, her peers. I feel like mm-hmm. you could see the narrative there. She was perfectly cast. That was like the best yes. casting her as uh, Marion Davies. I think that was, you know, part of the genius of the movie is like having her in that role. Um, so here's yeah. here's another question for you. Uh, traditionally, in a traditional Oscar year, this would have played the festival circuit and you have yes. been to a number of film festivals. Do yes. you think that if this was a traditional Oscar year and Mank goes to Toronto and goes to Venice and goes to Telluride, uh, mm-hmm. does that help it or does that hurt it? I think the festival circuit for in, in its relation to the Oscars is about like timing and narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that in theory, yes, it could, because that's when you start hearing the buzz. Like I remember, um, for, uh, a star is born when it came out at, uh, ah, yes. I think it was like Venice. Right. And they were mm-hmm. like, or maybe even Toronto before was it Ven- no it was Venice I think it and was Venice because like, I remember yeah. her on the gondola right right and they were like oh yeah Lady Gaga is amazing in this or like Bradley Cooper actually is a good director and all this stuff right uh-huh. like but with Mank like that comes out like let's say it comes out at Venice you're like I think you start getting the buzz but I do think you start getting buzz for I mean it helps with other movies too I think it <sighs> There's too many other narratives at the end of the day, uh-huh. right? Chadwick Boseman is going to be the story of the Oscars. He's going to win Best Actor. He's going, like, I don't know. I haven't seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. It might not be that great, whatever. But, like, to me, that's the narrative. And mm-hmm. the festivals, I think you would have seen a lot of that narrative being pushed, too. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I My answer is that it would have gotten some momentum, but I still don't think enough because i mean at the end of the day a star is born got so much momentum and didn't win right yeah but then you saw like parasite it can and that carried that like rode the wave the whole way through so but it was a little mm-hmm. unusual so i don't know i think mank would not would not have won i think the fact that mank is coming out now in a dead year uh, on a weekend where there's really no other movies that are coming out and is still yeah. this silent i just i can't imagine it doing well in the in the festival circuit where it's up against hundreds of other movies that are going to be playing at the same time. So I don't, I I feel like this was... Can I ask you a question? Yeah, of course. So if social network comes out, if he put social network out this year, Uh what do you think happens with that? Like, how does that get received? How does that, you know, I mean, in your opinion, I I mean, I think if I think if what 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 year did that come out like 2012 or or 
2010 i think if i think if like that had been the pandemic year and it came out during the pandemic year and there was less competition that that would have obviously done really well i think the facebook narrative in 2020 needs to maybe be a little bit sharper i think that the social network yeah so but i but i think that yes i think i think if david fincher had one of his more finchery kind of movies come out this year and it, I think that people want to give him awards. They really like him. They right. like they like Seven. They like Zodiac. They like uh, a social network. They he's been close to winning for a social network and for Benjamin Button. Yeah. I think that obviously Gone Girl got a lot of attention. Like I think that if he had a movie that come out this year that was really strong and sort of was in his wheelhouse, that he would have a good chance at winning. But I think that. Mank is just like too far flung from what he normally does and seems to be sort of like a sentimental like pet project right. that Netflix put a lot of money into and I just can't see it winning best picture or best director. Well, I mean, I guess maybe best director, but I don't I don't even think that. I don't think so. I think it'll I think it'll ultimately fizzle out, but I I think that if he releases Zodiac or like you said, a, a handful of his movies, Zodiac, Social Network, a few others, mm-hmm. they would win this year. I would um, be like 90% sure of that. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, honestly, this is a weak year. And we're looking around right. at this point, and I'm seeing nothing as far in the best picture race that is really standing out. I feel like usually right. at this point, I mean, granted, the the Oscar season is two months pushed back. So, right. you know, instead of thinking this like December, you sort of have to think of it like it's October. But even still, I feel like even in October, you usually have a couple of things where you're like, okay, these are definite contenders, where now... I feel like that that race has is completely wide open. Like if something good came out, if some studio snuck something out at in, you know mid February that was strong, I think it could mm-hmm. still win Best Picture. I think that race is far from being tied up. I think so too. It just to like close the loop. I do think that like you just said at this time, like add two months. This is sort of like October. That would be mm-hmm. it. Would be right around right after when Toronto would end, right? And mm-hmm. like right around. Yeah you know, tell you ride and all that. So to me, like nomad land that, you know, we're, I think it was supposed to come out of can, uh, say that comes out at like Venice or tell you ride or Toronto, mm-hmm. like that would have just as much push behind it as Mank. Like uh, what I'm mm-hmm. saying is at the end of the day, I don't think the festival circuit would have helped Mank get over the hump because a few of these others would have just as much going for them. I think. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, Mank just isn't that good of a movie, and so it's would yeah. it's going to have a struggle no matter what. Um, yep. So one thing we always do is like now, later, or never. Would you suggest that people watch this now? That people could sort of like wait and watch it at a future point, or that people should just skip this? People should be given a flowchart, and if you <laughs> like TCM, <laughs> um, then yes. Uh, right away uh if if no then never (laughs) no so i think like if you if you want to um you know for for zeitgeist purposes and want to know what's going on during oscars because this will get nominated like we said um you can see it obviously it'll be on streaming there's no urgency for this movie um Mm -hmm. if if you're really into this time period uh, and things like this, I would say see it right away. 
Um, but if neither of those categories would describe you, I would say uh, your life isn't going to change if you don't say it. Yeah, I'd say <laughs> I'd say if you're yeah, if you're an Oscar buff or a film person like, yes, definitely you should watch it. But I think that you should watch Citizen Kane first. Um, and I don't think you really have to be in any hurry to watch this. You know, if you want to wait and sort of see what nominations it gets and then be like, eh, maybe I'll watch it, maybe I won't. I think that's perfectly fine as well. Um, Can I give a but okay. quick recommendation? Yeah, of course. Okay, so instead of seeing Mank and you want to yes. watch something in black and white mm-hmm. that was a movie written by Mank's brother Joe, who you see in the movie, Joseph Mankiewicz, yes. play, played by the guy that was on Ozark this season, watch All About Eve. One of the best movies ever made, in my opinion, one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. But the writing in that movie, you have Betty Davis, you have a bunch of people in this movie. The writing in that movie is just fantastic. So if you like fast talking, you know, just like super high quality, uh, watch Ever Since Eve by Joseph Mankiewicz, his brother. And uh, that's a fun little recommendation to watch instead of Mank. Okay. Well, there you go, peeps. You have it. That's so why then you have let's me on get this episode. I know, I know, I know. You know, give give the people the black and white recommendations because Lord knows I can't. When you said black and white movie, I was like, the artist, uh, the artist. Is that what you're going to be recommending? Um, uh, Schindler's List, uh, Roma. Pass. These are the movies that I have uh, on my wheelhouse. Um, so, okay. black and white movie, modern black and white movie. You'll probably edit this out later, but. Uh, you weren't there. It's a Coen Brothers movie from like 2001. Uh, Billy Bob Thornton. It's very, very much their version of like a black and white movie, and underappreciated. Very good movie. Uh, if you like, I Billy love Bob the Coen Brothers, and I have not seen that. And I also like Billy Bob Thornton. It, it, yep. That's giving. I'm getting uh, Fargo season one uh, in my mind, so mm. maybe I'll have to check that out. Yeah, there um, you go. But speaking of things that people should check out, let's get into sure. love it or hate it. Josh, oh. do you have a love it or a hate it? What what would you like to tell the people about? I have so many love it's or hate it's. This could go on forever. So let's start. Yeah, with... You can only pick one. <laughs> so let me start with Euphoria. Okay. So, okay. Okay. Uh, Euphoria season two is coming soon, but they just dropped on HBO Max this like bridge episode or whatever. And it's basically oh, yeah, like just... a Christmas special. Exactly. And it's basically just uh, two characters, one of which is Zendaya. You may or may not have seen it in this diner talking about a lot of heavy, heavy stuff. And that's right mm-hmm. up my alley for some reason. I mm-hmm. love diners. Love, you love, love diners. <laughs> yes. I'm a big diner fan. Uh, no, I love this one hour episode. I watched most of season one of Euphoria. It was a little bit of a tough hang, a lot more style over substance. Um, but I, I would say in the love it category of the Christmas special for euphoria that just dropped on HBO max. Okay. Well, there you go. I, I did not watch (laughs) euphoria. I, uh, uh, I, I, I feel like I heard various like adult film critics be like, this is just like I just can't. It's too, it's just too it's too much. It's too a lot of times it's, too, it's too too much. much teenagers, and it's too much like to, teenagers not being uh like like not acting like actual teenagers. They're like acting like adults <laughs> think that teenagers act like. Yes, There's which is a whole genre in and of itself. Yes, the Caitlin Riley TikTok is fantastic it's, about that. It um, is. Zendaya is amazing. 
She's so good. I mean, she won the she won the exactly. Emmy and I, she was good in the Greatest Showman. So I, you know, <laughs> I have that. Yep. <laughs> yep. Um, Your turn. Okay, so my uh, is this? A, it's definitely not a love it. I don't know if it's. I go so far to say it's a hate it, but I read Ready Player Two, which is the sequel to Ooh. Ready Player One. Uh, which is then a novel by Ernest Klein that was then made into a Steven Spielberg movie. The book was very, very popular. It's sort of like a video game type thing uh, with lots of like 80s references. And then it was made mm-hmm. in the movie, which I think to middling success. I thought the movie was fine, but I didn't necessarily love it. The hard part about translating mm-hmm. that book into a movie is that the book is so much about like these riddles and reading about riddles is very fun because you can sort of like try to unpack them while you're reading. Watching yeah. someone try to solve a riddle in a movie is not fun. So they really had to try to change that up in order to make the movie work. And I don't think that it did necessarily. But anyways, Ernest Klein, the author, said that he wasn't going to write a sequel. I think probably needed money. And so then agreed to write a second sure. book. So Get I checks. read it. Yeah. <laughs> And I think the issue is that he falsely identified what he thought were the things that people liked about the first book. Okay. The first book has a really great plot and pacing to it. Sure, it has all these 80s references. Sure, it has all of this weird video game technology. But mostly, it's like the plot and the characters. And in the second book, I think he was like, you know what people liked about this? the 80s references and the video game technology and there's just so much of that and the plot like kind of pokes its head out at various points and is in is interesting for a chapter or two but there's like four chapters in a row where these characters are exploring this world that's like the prince world and it's just like all of these different prince references and prince song like it's just like this is too much and especially if you if you find yourself in one of these sections because there's like six different sections that they go to and it's Mm -hmm. something that you really have no connection to it's just drags there's a whole like lord of the rings thing but it's not even lord of the rings it's like the silmarillion whatever like prequel bonus crap or whatever and I was just like sort of like scanning through like none of these words mean anything. This could be in a gibberish language and it would be fine. Like just getting through to get to the end of the book. And the ending was sort of weird. So I don't know if you loved Ready Player One, like maybe check it out. But if you are middling at all or have any hesitancy, I would say skip it because it's not that great. Well, my eyes glazed over, even though this is a podcast, you can't see (laughs) it, but (laughs) my eyes glazed over as you were describing it about five seconds in so yeah whatever that's yep. worth well there you go <laughs> there you go avoid avoid everyone um okay well there we go that's it josh uh do you have anything else that you want to add about mank about black and white movies about zendaya do you have anything you want to be plugging at this point your other than my letterbox, letterbox. <laughs> no so one more thing um This show, Industry, on HBO Max, have you guys talked about this yet? No, we have not. Okay, so let me do, like, let me just tell viewers, it's it's a show on HBO Max. I don't know if you're familiar with the show Skins on, I think it was, like, a British show. Where it's just, like, Mm -hmm. a bunch of teenagers, just, like, all kinds of stuff happening, right? So Mm -hmm. imagine that, but, like, in the, like, finance world, and... Mm -hmm. I work in the finance world and it's just like sort of like 
PTSD and sort of like insanity. Um, mm-hmm. So if you want to watch something that's just like totally bonkers, like Billions is like a shiny version of finance, right? Like, hey, mm-hmm. let's have like just like fun, fun to watch, even though it's a lot of esoteric stuff. Like industry is just like a bunch of 22 year olds, like literally living their life, you know, at a club doing drugs out till 4 a.m., come in the next day and have to do work, like real, like people shouting Mm -hmm. at them. And then like, there's just some crazy stuff going on. And I don't know if that's something anyone is interested in. I was watching these episodes being like, who is the audience for this? Like, A, I can't imagine anybody knows about it. It wasn't marketed. B, like, this is such a specific thing that i can't imagine people watch the show anyways it's like mank (laughs) it's like mank so i didn't know if you had heard of it or not but clearly you did it so maybe just edit that out but oh no (laughs) no uh we'll we'll keep it in we'll keep it in we all love a recommendation honestly just very bizarre like if you're into bizarre like 22 year old type craziness then check that out that's the last thing i watched I have friends who work in finance, well, you and other friends who also work in finance, and I, I, I do find the stories that I hear very intriguing. So, or I was just going to say, so when you texted me about it, I was like, okay, let me like mentally check this in my mind um, as something that I might want to watch in the future. What is the, other than Mank, what is like the last thing you've seen that you really liked? Well, I, I really like love The Crown. Okay. The crown, the crown. The fourth season of The Crown I thought was amazing. The uh have you I I feel like you watched some of I have the I'm crown still like, like earlier in the run. Up. I'm in like two yes. seasons in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I loved I think season one of The Crown is by far the worst season, especially the okay. first half. So it's like slow to get into. But it the second slow. season is phenomenal. That's my favorite season. But this season was a close second, season four. So oh, um it's okay. like Princess Diana, Margaret Thatcher. It was uh yeah, there was a lot of like juicy details. So I watched that. I'm also watching The Bachelorette currently because we have an episode <laughs> on that coming up in a couple weeks. Awesome. Um, but yeah, I'm trying to think of other things that I've watched. I think I, Hillbilly Elegy for last week. But honestly, I haven't been watching too, too much stuff other than what we've been covering on the podcast. Um, and what the last question from me, what are you looking mm-hmm. forward to the most next? Oh, like as far as the Oscar stuff goes? Well, and like it could movies be a TV out? show or a movie or whatever. Yeah, I'll let you answer. Um, hmm. I'm... The listeners want to know. Yes. Well, I'm ex- I'm excited for Nomadland because I feel like that has been getting a lot of buzz. I'm also... I'm a, Well, you know, I'm a big Lucas Hedges fan. And he has yeah. two different movies, I think, that are coming out here in the next couple of months. So I'm excited to see both those. But one of them is him and Meryl Streep on a cruise that comes to HBO Max this weekend. So I'm excited. So that I'm looking forward to. And what's that called? Uh, it's one of those titles. It's like everybody talking or like let, let, the, <laughs> let the people speak or something like okay, that. So, um, so recommend everybody talking on HBO Max. And yes. <laughs> um, no, I'm looking forward to Nomadland now that Mank is out of the picture. Um, I think Nomadland is like number one on my list. And um, let yeah. them all talk. That's what it's let called. Let them all talk. Perfect. Uh, yeah, so Nomadland for me. 
Okay, perfect. Well, whenever No Man Land comes out, we'll have to watch and text each other. Um, Sounds great. But Josh, thanks so much for being on the podcast. All of your information was invaluable. (laughs) I think this was so helpful. Whenever they make a movie about, you know, like the cinematographer for Gone with the Wind or something, we'll have to have you back (laughs) on the show. I can't wait until that day comes. What a day (laughs) that will be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For our listeners, we will be back next thursday uh i think i think next week we're talking about the prom the new ryan murphy movie based on a musical uh which me and former guest of the podcast sierra velarde saw together so she's coming back on the podcast and we're going to talk about seeing that as a broadway show and then also the movie that's coming out with meryl streep and nicole kidman big week for meryl streep she has two movies coming out next week that's crazy. Maybe I need to check star. my schedule. I know. But anyways, uh, in the meantime, follow us on social media. We're at PSU Wrong on Instagram and Twitter. I don't know when the Instagram will be back up and running because Shelby's having a baby, but I'm in charge of the Twitter, so you can head on over there. Also, you can send us an email at PSURong at gmail.com, and you can always leave us a review at Apple Podcasts, which we will read on the show. Josh, thanks again for uh, coming on, and everybody else, we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye-bye.